guys. Welcome. This is Allison. That's Jess. Back with another episode of Salt Lime Storytime, a long one. We yes, are doing bitch. media stories today. We are. I'm and, so excited. Oh, me too. It's going to be very fun. I very much enjoyed writing this. Um, but just before we start, would you like to tell me how your week went or is or was? My week has been so lovely. I got to like spend a lot of time in the sun. I went to Lagoon with Miss Allison and our friend of the pod, Miss Stevie, and then of course my lovely partner Brendan. Um, and what else did I do this weekend? Oh, we did some pool parties. I ate a lot of barbecue. It's been a really lovely last couple of days. Allison, how about you? Good. Um, I also went to Lagoon, as you barely just stated. That was the highlight of my week. I've been training at a new job, uh, which is good, but I it was nice to not have to work on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so that's when we went. And I haven't been to an amusement park in about four years. Yeah. And my body got pummeled. I don't understand what happened to me between the ages of like 22 and 25. I can't bend my knees anymore. Like bending down, like squatting to grab something off the floor, forget about it. (laughs) Let alone going on my old favorite rides, which I guess, yes, I can still stomach, but my bones cannot handle being whipped around like that. I have so many bruises on my body. Like Stevie and I, we went on a ride called the Samurai, where it basically twirls you through the air and whips you around. Basically like, like, your nunchucks it's kind of they should call it the nunchuck really but that's kind of what the ride's all about and me and her were just like it used to be like both of our favorite rides and when we got off we were like oh my god like it was so painful the entire time we were just like we just were waiting for it to be done anyway but it was still a great time we had so much fun but I would say the highlight of that whole trip was like just eating lunch and drinking beers with all of you guys. Yes. No, <laughs> but it seriously. It was so fun being on the rides. Like I loved it. I love going on the fast ones, but my they're like getting too rickety for my old bones. Exactly. No, I feel you. Um I am also so bruised. I have like 15 bruises on my legs from all of these various rides. I really love roller coasters. They're so fun. But I agree. This was the first time I've been to an amusement park that I, after every ride, had to, like, take a breather. Absolutely devastating to see that we're getting old. But it was still so fun. And Mm -hmm. I will agree. There's nothing better than drinking beer in the sun with your friends. Except I wasn't drinking beer. I was having a Diet Coke. But the sentiment's there. (laughs) Yeah, it was a great time. So... 10 out of 10 would recommend going to an amusement park if that's your thing. But if you haven't been in a few years, just beware. Take, you know, learn from my mistakes and be more prepared that your body won't like to be whipped around like it used to. And I'm still 25. I'm still in my 20s. I'm still a spring chicken, according to some. But my God, I feel more like a nice autumn, like, (laughs) hen now. Like, there's not much happen for me in the ways of movement so anyway i feel like a sweaty summer chicken (laughs) just lethargic and gross completely that's exactly how i feel exactly cool well allison i'm so excited to get into this moments in media story with you you're going first this week right yes cannot wait I've got a good cocktail. You've got a good cocktail. I am ready to sit here and enjoy. 
Let's do it. Okay. So this story, I heard it for the first time in my college communications class, I think, in my mm-hmm. freshman year. It, I thought it was so interesting. I, it was one of those classes where I was like, I left like researching the topic more because I was so fascinated by it. And so that is the story I want to share with you today. Jess, this is the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast panic. Yes, bitch. So, before I get into it, my sources for this are a Vanity Fair article by Brad Schwartz, uh, an NPR article by Mark Mehmet, Mehmet, um, an article from History.com, Wikipedia, of course, thewellisnet.com War of the Worlds radio script, and the War of the Worlds radio broadcast, which you can actually listen to online, like in a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. You can listen to the actual broadcast, but I do. I think it's a dress rehearsal. I don't think the actual live broadcast that they did is still around. I'm pretty sure it was destroyed, but the dress rehearsal is still around, and that's what you can listen to, and it's still just as chilling. So I would recommend listening to that and reading the along. Like I am a deaf bitch. I need subtitles, and. So I would I read the radio script along with the broadcast when I was listening to it because they also have those like old old timey voices like this we talk about it like this you know and they like oh why oh my gosh like it's it's very old timey how they sound and it's it's hard to understand at times so <laughs> I loved that impression so much but I mean you know exactly what I mean right I do did you know that that because that part of that is because of the way that microphones worked at the time. I'm sure you I do. believe that, but I don't know why that would be, but I believe that. Me either. I just feel like I saw that on like a Discovery Channel. Like, you know how they used to do those little like fun fact you didn't know, like in between commercials? Yeah. Or like the History Channel would do the same thing. I feel like that's something that was in there. But I could be wrong. I could be making that up. No, that's fair. Like, I, I think you're absolutely right because it's it's in all old movies and shows where they're like, why? And then it's like, listen here, see, you and they have like that old. <laughs> Anyway, you know what I mean, and if you listen yes. to the recording, you can see what I'm talking about. So, okay, wait, I'm so sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but I no, just you're remembered good. this thing that I learned yesterday. You saying like, "Oh, here, see," made me think of this. Did you know that nifty is short for magnificent? That's pretty nifty. Yeah, I had no idea. Oh my god, I goodness. just learned that, and I just thought I'd share. <laughs> anyway, continue, I did not please. know that. Thank you. All right, so this is the War of the Worlds radio broadcasting panic. Twas the night before Halloween in 1938, 84 years ago. It was 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time when Orson Welles' radio adaptation of War of the Worlds was broadcasted. Orson Welles had a radio series called the Mercury Theater on the Air, in which every week he and his team would present an hour-long performance of a literary classic in script form. Because it was almost Halloween, it makes it makes sense that he would want to pick some, you know, kind of spooky and scary. Mm-hmm. And so what better book to adapt than War of the Worlds, written by H.G. Wells in 1898? Honestly, a great choice, you know? Absolutely. And for those of you who, for some reason, maybe don't know what that is, it is a story about an aggressive and deadly alien invasion of Earth. Um, there's a movie about it with Tom Cruise and Dakota Fanning is a little kid and it has one of 
it that movie scarred me. There's one particular scene that absolutely dramatized me for a reason I can't explain. It's when the train goes by on fire, but everything's on fire. Like I, it disturbed me on a level I cannot. A train specifically. A train specifically. They're all running from these monsters while they're walking through a city, and the the arms go down across the road like a train's coming by. And the tra- this, like, speed train goes past, but there's just flames shooting out of the windows on the way by. Oh, my God. And it keeps going, and then, you know, the bells ding, and then the arms go up, and everybody just walks across the railroad tracks, almost like nothing happened. I don't know why, but that scene is horrifying to me more than almost anything. Anyway, so that's the movie The War of the Worlds with Tom yeah. Cruise in it, but this is the radio broadcast. And, <clears throat> okay, so Jess, it's 1938. I want you to picture for me that you are living in this time. Sexism is rampant. Women are housewives and have about as many rights as we do today. Yeah. Children ran around and did basically whatever they wanted while daddy was at work. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get the picture. All right. And so one of the fun family activities people would do every night was listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. So... You just finish your dinner, and we all sit down (laughs) as a happy family in front of the radio for some entertainment before bedtime. Okay? Okay. The War of the Worlds show began on Sunday, October 30th at 8 p.m. Right as it started, a voice announced, The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Wells introduces the radio play. And the show begins with the weatherman reading a weather report like any normal radio station. Then the weatherman introduces an orchestra playing in New York City. So, but, but let's just say that you and your family turn to the radio, turn the radio on at like 8.04 and mm-hmm. you miss his introduction to the show. And this is the first thing you hear. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza in New York City, we bring you the music of Ramon Raquelo and his orchestra. You hear a swell of beautiful music, you lean back, relax, and you just listen. You then, then suddenly, the program is interrupted with an announcement describing reports of several gas explosions occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates that the gas is moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun. Then they just return you back to the orchestra music. Okay? Great. So so the music continues again for a few more moments, and applause is heard as the piece ends. Then, as they are announcing the next song, the orchestra show was interrupted yet again with another announcement. This time, the announcer is following up on the earlier interruption, stating that all large observatories across the country are now watching Mars for more disturbances. Now, they are going to interview astronomer Professor Pearson, who will describe the phenomenon. So, the interviewer, Carl Phillips, is talking to Pearson about the events, and it sounds exactly like any regular radio interview. Like, he's a knowledgeable scientist, he's using annoyingly big words and like he's describing the distance from earth to mars the likelihood of aliens as being like completely untrue all this stuff Mm -hmm. and then you hear him speak off mic to someone who just handed him a letter and the letter informs of a meteor strike in a neighborhood called grover mills new jersey about 20 miles away from where they are now and the announcer goes on to say that we'll keep you posted on that so they return you back to the music 
So if you just tuned in, you you think that you were just listening to an orchestra, yes. right? And there's just all this weird shit happening on Mars. But you're like, okay, whatever. And so it pay- if the, the program fades back to piano music and it is yet again shortly interrupted. You, they go on to say that they are sending Carl Phillips and Professor Pearson to investigate the scene. And so swing music plays for about 20 seconds and then it cuts. Carl Phillips and, and Professor Pearson just arrived at the crash site and this is what they see. So this is what Carl Phillips says, quote, well, I just got here. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of about 30 yards, and the metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. End quote. So... They get closer to the object, and they begin to hear a strange humming coming from it, which you can hear on the on the radio. They see the top of the cylinder begin to move as if unscrewing itself. Then suddenly, you can hear in the background the sound of clanking as a large piece of metal falls off. The crowd gasps and yells. Carl Phillips comments on this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something i can see peering out of that black hole two luminous discs are they eyes it might be a face it might be then you hear more noises and shouting from the crowd good heavens something's wriggling out of the shadows like a gray snake now it's another one and another they look like tentacles to me there i can see the thing's body it's large large as a bear and it glistens like wet leather but the face it ladies and gentlemen it's indescribable I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. Hot. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ladies, he's a 10, but he has rimless lips that quiver and pulsate. But I mean, what kind of lips are we talking here? <laughs> a V-shaped lip, apparently. That's exactly what I mean. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. All right. I'm like blushing. I'm sorry. It's it's <laughs> you a good are thing. Blushing? It's a good thing that like <laughs> lesbians weren't allowed to exist back then because I would have heard this and laughed so hard. <laughs> the writers in that room were like stoned <sighs> on cocaine and they were like i don't think you get mm-hmm. stoned on cocaine they were yeah, they were uh doing cocaine to just get through their 40-hour work week and they were like this yep. is gonna be such a funny add-in yeah Whew, but sorry and jen and i mean if you think about it not in a perverted way like i was it's actually quite scary so let me let me repeat that yes. so ladies and gentlemen it's indescribable i can hardly force myself to keep looking at it the eyes are black and gleam like a serpent the mouth is v-shaped with saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate the thing is raising up the crowd falls back now they've seen plenty this is the most extraordinary experience i can't find words i'll have to stop the description until i take a new position hold on will you please i'll be back in a minute so it fades back into piano music and then announcer one comes on after a minute to announce the return of Carl Phillips with his eyewitness accounts of the mysterious thing in the Grover Mill, uh, Grover Mill, New Jersey. So Carl describes hiding behind a fence and watching policemen walk towards the pit, waving a white flag of truce. 
Then you can hear this humming and the hissing grow louder and as something starts to happen. So, quote, a humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror and it leaps right towards the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good Lord, they're turning into flame. And so in the background, you hear shrieking and screaming and people freaking out. And then he goes on to say, now the whole field's caught fire. Then there's an explosion. The woods, the barns, the gas tanks of automobiles, it's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. About 20 yards to my right. And then you hear the microphone crash to the ground. And then there's just dead silence for a while. And then the announcer comes back saying, ladies and gentlemen, due to the circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return you to that point at our earliest opportunity. We now continue with our piano interlude. So they go back to the orchestra. Eventually, announcer two comes on to describe the scene at Grover Mills. Quote, at least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. End quote. And announcer two is about to return the listeners to the orchestra when there is a long pause and a voice return in a whisper saying they have established communication with Professor Pearson at the scene. Then you hear some like feedback and shuffling and then you can tell that his voice is kind of like distorted like he's trying to like be really quiet. And this is what he says, quote, of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information either as to their nature, their origin or their purpose here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It is all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance to our own. End quote. So he goes on to state that the deadly beam of heat is similar to that of a lighthouse in appearance and that they can project it onto any object they choose, basically just incinerating it. Mm-hmm. So the announcer, too, says that they are going to turn over the radio broadcasting to the militia because it is in the public's best interest to be kept informed. Okay. So now the military is reporting live on air. And this message is from the captain, who is now on the scene at Grover's Mill looking at the thing in the ground. He is very confident. He has a whole fucking monologue. And he is so confident that the 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns surrounding the pit will be able to stop it. Americans really haven't changed. Okay, that's all I got to say. So no, no cultural changes there. (laughs) No, no, ma'am. So... He's like, we're chilling. And then you hear him say, quote, wait, something is moving. Solid metal, kind of shield-like affair, rising up from the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why? It's standing on legs. Sorry. <laughs> okay. They just sound so dumb. So why? It's standing on legs, actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees and the searchlights are on it. Hold on. Then it cuts. And there's a long pause. And then a grave announcement is soon made stating that it is inescapably clear that this is an invading army from the planet Mars. The announcer says, quote, the battle which took place tonight at Grover Mill has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by any army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars 120 known survivors, the rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster. 
or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia is discontinued. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. At this time, martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. End quote. So pretty scary, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If I didn't, if I didn't know, I'd be a little concerned. And like now, nowadays you can just like go on your phone and Google News, and it'll pop up right away. But mm-hmm. they couldn't do that. So um, the people that believed that this was real were fucking sitting there like, "Holy shit!" Like wondering what's gonna happen next. And announcer one is back stating that more of these like tripod machines were seen in Langham, uh, Langhamfield, Virginia. Quote: Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible for, uh, visible above treetops, moving north towards Somerville, with population fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray not in use, although advancing at express train speed. Invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid the destruction of cities and the countryside. However, they stop to uproot the power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. End quote. Hot. Right? I mean, what a game plan. So... Announcer one is like goes on to say that they have run a special wire to the artillery line in adjacent villages to Virginia to where the monsters are. And these guys, a gunner and an army officer, are firing missiles at this creature. And you can hear them yell like fire, then there's explosions, and then they have these whole like conversation and stuff, but then they see this like black smoke start to cloud their vision from the monster. And they can't like like they can't get target basically so they can't really fire and so they put on their gas masks but the gas gets closer and closer and it starts to penetrate their gas masks then they start coughing and gagging and as they're dying the scene cuts and shifts to a bomber plane surveying the scene (laughs) so he reports six machines surrounded by a cloud of thick black smoke, and he says that they are turning east and crossing the Passaic River to go to New York City. Then suddenly you hear the pilot start screaming as these machines use their heat ray to blast them out of the sky. And this is all live on the radio, so people think that they're hearing people dying, basically. So, mm-hmm. and now, honestly, I think this is, par- personally, I think this is the scariest part. So I'm just going to read you the whole thing. So this is back to announcer one reporting from the roof of their New York City broadcasting building. So basically he grabbed his recording equipment, went up to the roof, and is just telling everybody what he's seeing. In the background, you can hear bells ringing. And this is what he said. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. It is estimated in the last two hours that three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. The bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed 10 minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here till the end. People are holding services below us in the cathedral. And then you hear a soft swell of hymn 
playing in the background. Now, I look down at the harbor, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from the docks. So then you hear what the hymns and the bells, the sound of boat whistles, and like clamoring. Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. Enemy now in sight over the palisades. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here, wading the Hudson like a man wading through a brook. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands, watching, looking over the city. His steel, cowish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out. Black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River. Thousands of them dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It reaches Times Square. People trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue. 100 yards away. It's 50 feet. He starts choking. You hear a body fall. The warning bells continue to chime. And then there's just silence. And then you hear an operator say, 2X2L calling CQ, 2X2L calling CQ, New York. Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? Oh my god. You are listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on the air in the original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Literally, that's like the next thing said. So <laughs> they just dropped that fucking bombshell. <laughs> And then they're like, you are listening to a presentation. So that's when they say it next. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's just say you are one of the people that believes this is happening. You probably aren't listening yeah. anymore. No. 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 Absolutely not. Like, you you out of here, you know? And so you're not feeling too great. I wouldn't be. No, not thrilled. <laughs> and... And so this this was broadcasted nationwide, and according to Radiolab, about twelve million people were listening when the when Wells broadcast came on the air, and about one in every twelve thought it was true, and so that means that about one million people were afraid and actually did run from their homes. And according to newspapers, the next day there was apparent mass panic, suicides, clogged highways, people speeding away in their cars, all this shit. And these are a few of those stories. So. John and Estelle Paltz were listening to the radio that night by the fire in their Manhattan home. They tuned in at around 8.30 and heard of some kind of armed invasion of Eastern Seaboard. Enemy aircraft were landing in New Jersey, and war machines were sweeping across the state of New York. Then they heard of the poisonous gas. Estelle later wrote that, All the primitive fear of the unknown awakened within me, robbed me of all reason. Only one thing remained to do. Run fly get on the fastest thing on wheels and go as far and as quickly as our last six dollars would take us so they spent all the money they had and they ran so they ran to the nearest subway station and were absolutely thrilled to make it there before the rest of the panic mob followed them and so they got on a train to hartford connecticut and while on the train in the middle of the ride their train suddenly slowed and stopped mid-route and, of course, they were like, fuck, they, the aliens or the invaders got here and they're coming and they're already coming to get us. So they start freaking out and they start to explain what is happening to those around them on the train car. And people on the car were like, what if they're actually telling the truth? And so they started to get nervous. 
And so somebody found a newspaper and apparently the passengers almost shredded the pages in a frantic search for the radio listings until they found the one announcing the dramatization of War of the Worlds on the radio at 8 o'clock p.m. So needless to say, they were quite relieved. And once in Connecticut, the Paltzes got a small loan from a stranger that helped them get home. The next day, Estelle wrote a 15-page handwritten letter to Orson Welles that described her and her husband's mad flight to Manhattan. Sorry, mad flight from Manhattan. But she wasn't angry. If anything, she was actually appreciative. She said, quote, I hope that the next performance and wish you many to come will bring us great joy instead of great fear. It's easier on our minds and our purse strings. End quote. So. Oh. Mm-hmm. So a disclaimer of the story being fictional was only stated four times, once in the beginning of the broadcast, once right before intermission, once right after intermission, and once right at the end. So most people that freaked out never heard any of the disclaimers. And some of the other first-hand accounts that I read um, about people freaking out when, like, listening to this, they came in after or between all the announcements, so they never read that. But once they noticed that nobody else was panicking or freaking out or that the news wasn't on every single radio station they realized it was a performance Mm -hmm. and so in fact regardless of what we have all been taught there was actually hardly a mass panic at all plot twist yeah okay and so this is a direct quote it was too good not to put in this is a direct quote from brad schwartz's vanity fair article quote Wells broadcasts did not create mass panic, but neither was a hysteria caused entirely a myth. Instead, it was something decades ahead of its time. History's very first viral media phenomenon. End quote. <laughs> His shit went viral. It was the first thing to go viral. Everybody heard of it. I thought that was so cool. So of That's the incredible. nearly 2,000 letters mailed to Wells and the Federal Communications Commission after the broadcast, only 27% came from the frightened listeners or people who witnessed any panic. So why, Jess, did this go on down in history as a disastrous event that induced mass hysteria? Many think, and I love the tea here, many think it is because of the newspaper's agenda to prove that the radio, which was their biggest competitor, was an untrustworthy platform for news. And so some listeners heard only a portion of the show and in the tension and anxiety prior to World War II, mistook it for a genuine news broadcast. And so thousands of them shared the false report with others or called CBS, they called newspapers, or they even called the police to ask if the broadcast was real. And so when the newspapers heard about this, they assumed that the large numbers of phone calls and the scattered reports of listeners fleeing their homes proved that there actually was a mass panic and hysteria, even though such behavior was never actually widespread. And they were like, boom, we are going to exaggerate this as much as we can and report that it is all true and wreck the radio's credibility. Drama. And they fucking did because the night of the airing, The creators of the show were bombarded with calls and various reporters swarming the station. At 8.32 p.m., producer John Houseman noticed executive producer Davidson Taylor step out of the studio to take a telephone call in the control room. Taylor returned four minutes later looking, quote, pale as death, as he had been ordered to immediately interrupt the War of the Worlds broadcast with an announcement of the program's fictional content. By the time the order was given... 
Announcer one was choking on poisonous gas on the roof of the New York Broadcasting Tower as the Martians overwhelmed the city. So, right before intermission anyway, and the program was less than one minute away from its first scheduled break. So the damage was already done, you know? And John Houseman recalls what it was like after the broadcast ended that night. (laughs) Quote, The following hours were a nightmare. The building was suddenly full of people in dark blue uniforms. Hustled out of the studio, we were locked into a small back office on another floor. Here we sat incommunicado while network employees were busily collecting, destroying, or locking up all scripts and records of the broadcast. Finally, the press was let loose upon us, ravening for horror. How many deaths have we heard of? Implying that they knew of thousands. What did we know of the fatal stampede in a Jersey Hall? Implying it was one of many. What traffic deaths? The ditches must be choked with corpses. The suicides? Haven't you heard about the one on Riverside Drive? It is all quite vague in my memory, and quite terrible. And all everybody that worked there that night had to leave and escape out of the back door <laughs> to avoid the swarms of people. But Orson Welles was still being followed, basically by paparazzi right after. And by the way, he was only 23 at the time. What? He was only 23 years old when this shit went down. I did not know that. Yeah, he was so young. And he recalls that, quote, after the broadcast, as I tried to get back to the St. Regis where I lived, I was blocked by an impassioned crowd of news people looking for blood and the disappointment when they found I wasn't hemorrhaging. It wasn't long after the initial shock that whatever public panic and outrage there was vanished, but the newspaper for days continued to feign fury. End quote. So, the morning after the broadcast, the Boston Daily Globe's front page headline read, Radio Play Terrifies Nation. The San Francisco Chronicles read, Panic sweeps U.S. as radio stages Mars raid. The New York Times said, Radio listeners in panic, taking war drama as fact. And the St. Petersburg Times said, Two realistic broadcasts of Jersey catastrophe stirs nation to hysteria. And within weeks, sorry, within three weeks, newspapers had published at least 12,500 articles about the broadcast and its impact. Adolf Hitler even referenced the broadcast in a speech in Munich on November 8th, 1938, stating the effect of the broadcast on the American public as evidence of, quote, the corrupt condition and decadent state of affairs in democracy. Oh, my God. Yeah. So even Hitler was like, "Uh uh-uh. The Federal Communications Commission investigated the program and found that actually no laws were broken and networks did agree that from here on out, they're going to be a bit more cautious with programming in the future. The broadcast actually helped Orson Welles land a contract with Hollywood Studio, and in 1941, he directed, wrote, produced, and starred in Citizen Kane, a movie that many have called the greatest American film ever made. Mm -hmm. And so to wrap this up, I'm going to talk about a story because again this went viral and so a lot of other countries around the world tried the same thing okay okay and a spanish language version produced in february 1949 by leonardo Paez and eduardo alcaraz of radio quito in quito ecuador actually did set off a panic in the city in the days 
Before the show aired, a local newspaper participated in the hoax by publishing false reports of unidentified objects in the skies above Ecuador. So when the show aired, police and fire brigades rushed out of the town to engage the alien invasion forces. And after it was revealed that the broadcast was fiction, the panic transformed into a riot. Hundreds of people attacked Radio Quito and El Comercio. The, that was the newspaper that printed the false UFO reports. Mm-hmm. The riot resulted in at least seven deaths, including those of Paya's girlfriend and nephew. Radio Quito was off the air for two years until 1951. And after the incident, Paya's self-exiled to Venezuela, where he lived until his death in 1991. Oh my gosh. And that is the story of the first viral media phenomenon, something that was overly stated as being a mass hysteria event when it actually wasn't Mm -hmm. and the effect that it had on media today kind of i guess i love it we love we love a really old meme (laughs) sure yeah we do (laughs) Uh. oh jess he's a five but he creates the first viral media phenomenon 12 That's what I thought. So interesting stuff, huh? Like, it's scary. Like, you can't necessarily, like, some of the articles that I read, they were like, you can't, like, a lot of people to this day believe that there was mass panic because they simply think that people in the 30s were, like, that much stupider than we are now. Yeah. Like, if something like that aired today, not many people would believe it's true. No, there'd be healthy skepticism. Exactly. And so there was so much of that. And the fact that people were able to be like, well, it's not in every station. Everything's fine. Like some people did believe it, but I couldn't find any deaths that happened. I couldn't find any suicides or any like accidents. Like I I really looked, I read a lot of articles and I couldn't find any that were factually noted as actually happening. So because when I learned about it, I thought it was just as it said, there were suicides and people were fleeing. Like it was like, yeah, people running down the street screaming. Like that's what I learned about. And so it was so interesting to like research this and basically prove myself wrong. Like mm-hmm. it was very interesting. So anyway, good stuff. That's, yes. that's the story of the War of the Worlds. I remember learning about that in that same college class, and I also remember learning about it as more of, like, a hysterical thing. So, very Mm -hmm. interesting to hear that it was a little bit blown up out of proportion, or should I say heat gun raid out of proportion? There it is. It was heat gun raid out of proportion a little bit. (laughs) And it was was so funny because it was, like, the newspapers being, like, the radio can't be trusted, but in doing that, they, like, I hate to say it. Trump ruined the phrase fault, like false news for me or fake news, but yeah. they kind of fake news did a little bit where yeah. and and so the more recent studies are like all the studies they did back then that tried to prove that it was all panic were actually like falsified a little bit. And Interesting. that most people that there were interviewed, even if they believed it, like one guy, like his parent his mom and grandma they were all listening to it he was like 17 and they were listening they turned it on when it was music and then they heard it at the beginning and it ended with all of them gathered around the radio listening to this like news broadcast and they were freaking out and his mom or his grandma was like we have to go to like the church down the street and 
they went out into the hall and there was nobody there and then they went got into the elevator and the guy running the elevator was like why are you freaking out they told him they were like he was like okay sure and they ran into the lobby expecting mass panic but nobody was freaking out and then the boy who was 17 at the time he remembers hearing just like something else on another station in the background and he was like wait why isn't if this is actually happening it should be being played everywhere so most people were able to figure it out before mass hysteria ensued and those people that were like aren't you listening to the radio like those people didn't really believe them Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's like somebody comes running up to you in the streets and it's just like weren't you listening to the radio the aliens are invading you're like sure sure thing all right like talk to you later yeah exactly (laughs) so anyway Tale as old as time, most people were skeptical and there wasn't actually as much mass hysteria. But in this in the one the one I mentioned in Ecuador, that did induce mass hysteria because they got the newspapers in on it, which is fucked up. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, so anyway. That's scary. They they went a little far with that one, but cool. Allison, that was so interesting. Thank you so much for that. I You're welcome. feel like I learned something that so I, I learned many things every time you tell me a story. And that one was so fun. It is fun. And I highly recommend that everybody goes and listens to the actual broadcasting of it. Mm-hmm. It is so much scarier coming out of not my mouth. Like the old timey, <laughs> the old timey microphone. Like he was so good at using background noises. It sounded yeah. so real. Like it sounded like actual news reporting and the way it was presented was very professional news reporting. So you guys need to go listen to it to get like kind of grasp the full extent of what people actually heard because it is really eerie. And I didn't I think the second half after intermission is just them living in a post-apocalyptic world, but I haven't even listened to that part because the first part's the best part. So yeah. Look it up and I recommend reading looking up a script and reading that alongside it because it can kind of be hard to understand so absolutely anyway jess okay allison <laughs> mine is a very different direction but are we surprised <laughs> if, if it's a plane crash is it a plane no. crash there is no plane crash <laughs> i would have been shocked either way so yes i'm, I'm surprised no matter what okay <clears throat> all right here we go allison I'm going to do something I rarely do on this podcast. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get I'm going to get a little bit serious on the pod today. <laughs> How do we feel about that? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Okay. Okay. I when, don't know what to expect. When you do you really have no idea what I'm doing? No. Oh my gosh, I love that so much. Okay. When you suggested this theme of iconic moments in like the public media or like newspapers and stuff, the very very first story that popped into my head was the Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky scandal of the late 90s. In my mind, (laughs) this story and the way it was reported is one of the most influential moments in both modern feminist history and modern American political history. It is a symbol for both how American politics is deeply, irrevocably corrupt institution and how our culture treats women, particularly when it comes to comparing women. In this case, Hillary and Monica, also known as the Madonna and horror figures in American pop culture. Oh my god. <laughs> I've never heard of that specifically. That's so interesting. 
So, in this essay, I will. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but I am going to give fair warning that I went a little bit meta on this at the end. So, I apologize in advance. But this is like a fixation, fascinating thing for me. So, I really had a lot of fun doing this. Um, or fun is the wrong word. I, I was very edified learning-wise while I was doing this. Um, I am a Monica Lewinsky fan, and I find her story, the story and her subsequent response to this experience, particularly in light of the Me Too movement, absolutely fascinating. And just like a fair trigger warning um, for anyone unfamiliar with the particulars of this case, I will be discussing themes of sexual harassment and assault, as well as inappropriate relationships in the workplace and severe power dynamics in relationships. So before we get in, my sources are... <laughs> And hold on to your seat because there's a lot of them. A Vox article titled Every Version of the Monica Lewinsky Story Reveals America's Failure of Empathy by Constance Grady. And of all of the sources that I read, this one was such an interesting read. And if you go look up any of these, it breaks down the four ways that American media responded to the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton story and how it reflects on feminism in the 90s versus in like the mid 2000s versus like the 2010s it's a very very interesting constance does a phenomenal job but i digress uh several wikipedia articles the clinton and the whiskey scandal article the bill clinton article the monica Lewinsky article and then the paula jones article a vanity fair article by julie miller titled monica Lewinsky and the bill clinton's meetings on impeachment american crime story versus real life a glamour article by abby gardner titled hillary clinton says her husband's affair with monica Lewinsky wasn't quote, an abuse of power, a bustle article by Brad Whittier titled A Full Timeline of Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky's Relationship, an L article titled The Explosive True Story Behind Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton's Affair Explained by Jess Pular, and a highly comprehensive, literally day-by-day timeline for three straight years titled A Chronology, Key Moments in the Clinton Lewinsky Saga by CNN. And when I tell you it is like a day-by-day listing pulled from the legal report, it is so comprehensive. Shout out to whoever did it. I don't know. It didn't have a name on it, but CNN really put their whole bussy into it. <sighs> anyway, <laughs> now that I've said the word bussy twice. With a B, not a P? Yeah. Okay. They're bussy. I was- I- They're bussy. <laughs> it's an anal reference. Oh, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. You're so welcome. <laughs> Anyway, before we start, Allison, when I say the name Monica Lewinsky, what is the first thing you think of? And I want your very honest answer. I did not have sexual affairs with that woman. Whatever he said, I can't remember his exact quote. What's his exact quote? His exact quote is, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Monica Lewinsky. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. That's what I remember when I first think of it. And I also think of, like, how she is, like, painted as a slut Mm -hmm. and a whore Mm -hmm. and terrible for that. And I also think about how I don't necessarily agree with that and Mm -hmm. I want to know more. So those are my top three. So this is perfect. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. Mine is blowjobs. I'll be blunt. It's the first thing I think of. Blowjobs and that's, then that's fair. the way that she has trans she has a really phenomenal TED talk. We're gonna get into it. And the TED talk is the second thing I think of. So 
All this to say, there is a very clear association with the name Monica Lewinsky and various parts of like our American culture and lexicon, particularly pertaining to the 90s. So let's get into this. Monica Lewinsky was born in San Francisco, California in 1973 to an upper class family. Her father, Bernard Lewinsky, an oncologist, is the son of German Jews who escaped Nazi Germany to El Salvador, then later to the United States when her father was 14. Monica, who is highly educated, attended their Jewish Temple's primary school, then Beverly Hills High School. She would go on to attend Santa Monica College, graduate from Lewis and Clark College in 1995 with a BS in psychology, and later would go to the London School of Economics for her master's degree in psychology. In July of 1995, she secured a job with an unpaid which is rude, by the way, White House. Um, She secured a job as an unpaid White House intern through the help of a family friend. She moved to Washington, D.C. and began her three-year stint as a political lackey. Meanwhile, Bill Clinton was about to head into his second term as president. His political career began in Arkansas, which is really all you need to know about him. Also, did you know his parents were named William Jefferson Blythe and Virginia Cassidy? I don't know why that strikes me as funny, but I feel like that is the most, like, insanely white name I've ever heard. (laughs) It's quite prestigious. Like, it's so presidential. They live at the end of a suburb. (laughs) It it is. That's a great way to put it. it. It definitely is. I don't know. It's impactful, but it made me giggle. Anyway. He had spent the late 70s and 80s working his way into two terms as Arkansas's governor, and in 1975, he made one of the greatest moves of his political career and married Hillary Rodham Clinton, a fellow lawyer who he'd met at Yale while she was studying law. Together, they ascended into the Oval Office and were experiencing overall a very good rating as, like, very good ratings as presidential ratings go, which means, like, 49% approval rating. Dismal. But for presidents... It's all right. Um, now, Allison, as you may or may not know, White House interns don't typically interact with the president. Monica's internship was technically for the office of Leon Panetta, President Clinton's chief of staff. During the fall of 1995, the government experienced the longest shutdown to date, which required bare bones crew in the White House. Unlucky unpaid Monica was one of such one of these such interns. Clinton would often come into their office during this time to deal with various matters, and it was reported he spoke to Monica a few times during these visits. All of this talking came to a head in November of that year when she reported she initiated, quote, intense flirting, end quote, with the president. And I'm going to quote a lot of things. So something that's really interesting about this case is because he was impeached for this incident and a couple of other things. Um... All of this is very highly recorded in judicial reports. So there is pretty much any time I'm quoting something, it is from that judicial report unless I say otherwise. Just FYI. Okay. So Monica says she initiated, quote, intense flirting with the president. A very famous story from this affair reads, quote, after a while, the president went into the chief of staff's inner office. Seeing this, Monica, who was wearing a smart navy blue pantsuit, decided to raise the stakes in their flirting ritual. She was standing with her back to the office door, and when he returned, she put her hands on her hips and with her thumbs lifted the back of her jacket, allowing him a fleeting glimpse of her thong underwear. It was over in an instant, although she was rewarded with an appreciative look as the president walked past. End quote. This is from Monica's story by Andrew Martin. It's a it's her memoir. 
On November 15th, they had their first of 10 sexual interactions after admitting there was a chemistry between them. Over the course of a year and a half, they would also go on to exchange phone calls, including phone sex, gifts, and notes that would prove fatal evidence down the road. In December of 1995, Monica was given a promotion to the Office of Legislative Affairs. In this role, she frequently was required to ferry mail to and from the Oval Office. It gave her much more face time with the president, and her work reportedly began to suffer from her distractions. In April of 1996, six months into the affair, Lewinsky was then transferred to a role at the Pentagon to be an assistant under the spokesman Ken Bacon. Later, during the investigation into the events between the two, it would be reported that the transfer was initiated due to, quote, inappropriate and immature behavior, end quote, on Lewinsky's part. Nothing was noted on the president's end other than the Secret Service had noted her, noticed her increased presence around the president. It was clear from the very beginning of the story that the White House was going to blame her for all of the encounters and not her supremely powerful partner. In her exit interview before going to the Pentagon, Lewinsky says she asked to remain in the White House and was told by Timothy Keating, quote, he told me I was too sexy to be working in the East Wing and that this job at the Pentagon where I'd be writing press releases was a sexier job, end quote. Allegedly, when she told the president of this, he promised he'd get her back in the White House upon his reelection. Now, I want to just take a pause here and say something that I didn't really think about or I didn't really realize until I started researching this. Monica loved Bill Clinton. I don't think that's something that's often like discussed at this point in the rhetoric. It's always like, yeah, they had this affair, blah, blah, blah. She was a slut, blah, blah, blah. She loved him. Like she admits in court cases that she, they had a very romantic affair. He gave her like a first edition poetry book from, um, Leaves of Grass by Walt Whitman. Like, it was very romantic. That does not excuse Bill Clinton's behavior. I want that to be clear. But I just want you to be thinking about that as I go through the rest of the story. This is a, she's also 21 to 24 at this time. So, at this, by this point, ask, yeah. she's 22 years old. So, think about yourself three years ago. She is seeing a man that's 30 years her senior, that is the literally the most powerful man in the United States. And she's an unpaid intern. And she is in love with him. I was I can't believe she's unpaid. In her promotion, she did start getting paid, but okay. her initial internship was unpaid. So just be thinking, like, like put yourself in her shoes as this person who is in love with this man, and the rest of these events about are about to happen. Okay, so just stick a pin in that. I can't say I wouldn't. Sorry, I can't say I wouldn't fall in love with Kamala Harris if she was president. And I was <laughs> in the White House. I, 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 I don't. We know did it, Joe. We did it. <laughs> Despite the separation, the president and Lewinsky continued their emotional affair via phone. During this period in their relationship, Monica befriended a coworker at the Pentagon named Linda Tripp. She let slip to Tripp that she was having an affair with the president, and Tripp became a confidant for the emotional whirlwind Monica was experiencing. After nearly a year apart, Monica, wearing a now-famous navy blue dress from Gap, attended a weekly radio broadcast by the president. Afterwards, they would have a sexual encounter that would leave the dress stained with the president's semen. Tripp encouraged Monica to keep the dress as a, quote, insurance piece after the fact and began recording her phone calls with Monica as the two would discuss the affair. These recordings included Monica playing voicemails from that Clinton had left her and Lewinsky discussing their relationship at length. So there is now audio recorded evidence as well as DNA evidence that is being collected. So wait, that girl totally like threw her under the bus. Yes, absolutely. 
A hundred percent. Bitch. So it gets worse. Around the same time, a woman named Paula Jones was in the process of suing Clinton for sexual harassment that had occurred in 1994. Her legal team caught wind of the not-so-secret secret affair between Lewinsky and the president and reached out to Monica in hopes of securing her help with testifying against him. Monica immediately discussed this with the president and asked what he would like her to do. She then went on to deny what she was subpoenaed for this case, and in the subpoena, she denied any harassment or relationship between herself and the president. She signed a legal affidavit declaring she had no relationship with the president, and by this point, the affair had been over for about four months. Um, quote, Clinton had told Lewinsky that even though he had had hundreds of affairs, he said, quote, made a concerted effort to be faithful to his wife after he turned 40. In a report by the investigators for Jones's case, they said, quote, he said he was attracted to Miss Lewinsky, considered her a great person and hoped they would remain friends. He pointed out that he could do a great deal for her. The situation, he stressed, was not Ms. Slonsky's fault. End quote. I, too, after 40, vow to be faithful to my partner. I also, while knowingly under investigation for sexual harassment of a different employee, am going to start an affair with a new employee. I mean, if anything, he has the audacity. And president of it and meanwhile hillary's just sitting there twirling her thumbs like i'm excited to hear what she says about this in these quotes he said even though he quote had had hundreds of affairs hundreds oh my god let's not forget that despite lewinsky's false affidavit affidavit under the president's direction the damage was done in early 1998, the situation had reached a boiling point. Lewinsky had just submitted the affirmation affidavit claiming no affair occurred after being told to do so by the president. Linda Tripp, armed with her recordings and mountains of evidence, goes to Ken Starr. Ken Starr is a name I want you to remember. He was in charge of a probe into the president's sexual affairs with various White House staff under him. Paula Jones was only one of a handful of women who had come out against the president for sexual misconduct. He'd also had women come out from when he was the governor of Arkansas and even prior to that. Man's a dirty, dirty whore. Upon hearing the recordings, Ken Starr worked with Linda to get more proof from Lewinsky in a secretly recorded conversation between the two women. Following this encounter, the two set up another meeting uh, in the Ritz-Carlton by the Pentagon to talk again. This time, when Monica went to meet up with her supposed friend, she is met by the FBI, who proceed to interrogate her about her relationship with the president and offer her immunity in exchange for her testimony. At this point, she says no until she has consulted her legal counsel. What a great girl's date. Am I right or am I right? <laughs> I mean, we've never done anything quite like that, so we need to up our game. I know, seriously. Get me arrested. I'm ready. Then... Finally, on January 19th, 1998, about a year and a half after Monica, or two and a half years after Monica came to Washington, D.C., the press breaks the story. Monica Lewinsky becomes a household name and Bill Clinton gets on national television to stick his foot in his mouth. Quote, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky, end quote. Overnight, Monica goes from being Monica to, quote, that woman. Ken Starr. Sorry, go ahead. 
No, I'm. I, I know. I know. It pisses me off. Ken Starr ramps up his investigation for the Paula Jones uh, probe and requests that he extend or he broadens his investigation to include all of the things going on with Monica for the last two years. He begins to bring evidence in front of a grand jury. This process is incredibly taxing on all parties involved. Monica's name is publicly released as a person who obstructed justice with her false claims that she had no relations with the president. Very quickly, she becomes the object of the country's disdain at a mere 24 years old. Hillary Clinton releases several statements and televised interviews defending the president and scorning Lewinsky, saying all of it is a lie. By July of 1998, Monica decides to take the immunity deal she had been initially offered by Ken Starr and begins to cooperate with the investigation into the president. Around the same time, a full seven months after the story broke, Clinton finally confesses to the affair. (sighs) Over the course of several months, the decision to impeach Clinton was finally reached in December of 1998. The jury found the president guilty of perjury and more, although he was later acquitted and left the office as one of the best rated presidents in our nation's history. Wow. So, Allison, you might be asking yourself, what happened to Monica after this whole thing happened? A great question you would ask there, Allison, if you had asked that. <laughs> wait, wait, Jess? Yes. I have a question. Yes. Not at all something that you implied I should ask, but, like, what happened? What happened to her after all this? Great question, Allison. Thank you. <laughs> the media made a lot of money off of her. That's what. Mm-hmm. To quote the L article, after the president's impeachment, it was Monica who became the vilified and controversial political and public figure. She was the face of a sex scandal. Her profile frowned upon as an example of infidelity, end quote. Late night talk shows took the story and ran with it. Jay Leno specifically made the entire late 90s about making blowjobs about Monica Lewinsky. To quote Vox, quote, in newspapers and on cable news and talk shows, she became variously a slut, an innocent victim, a liberated woman, someone sexy, someone fat, someone feminine, someone unwomanly. Her name became synonymous with a sex act. Her humiliation became a national spectacle. And feminist and anti-feminist groups alike hated and loved her. New York Times writer Maureen Dodd reported an anonymous congressperson's thoughts saying, quote, it's the grossest kind of infidelity, just sheer constant physical relief and satisfaction, really using the crudest way somebody who was obviously extraordinarily gullible and obviously madly in love with him, somebody who would have done anything for him and doing this in the Oval Office. I'm having a very hard time with it. I don't want to be an enabler, end quote. Monica was viciously compared to the ever-poised Hillary Clinton, and both women were made fun of for different reasons. One for being naive, dumb, and slutty. And I'd like to point out, when I started this, I mentioned all of the ways that Monica was highly educated. Does not come across in the media at all. She is considered dumb and gullible, are two words that are talked about her at length. Um, so one was made fun of for being naive, dumb, and slutty, the other for being replaced by an intern. It's the oldest damn if you do, damned if you don't trope in the book. 
Monica became a symbol of sexual liberation gone wrong. There was no hashtag MeToo movement rhetoric in place to provide solace or a way to talk about this event. Despite voices here and there shouting into the void that Lewinsky was a victim and had Bill Clinton been in any other profession, he would have been fired. At the end of the day, it was postured by the media and politicians that Monica was an adult who had actively pursued a fellow adult man and now had to deal with the consequences. Even as the hashtag MeToo movement began to take hold in 2017, the rhetoric around her experience as a victim still feels sticky. She, I mean, she loved him. Like, she loved him in whatever way that was. She loved him. In her testimony to the grand jury uh, when she was being uh, examined, she admits to have fallen in love with the president despite her best intentions. But does that absolve the president, a known predator and a cheater, from guilt outside of cheating on his marriage. His daughter was 16 at the time he started the affair, only six years younger than Lewinsky. And Ew. she is 27 years younger than he is. Ew. No, ew. I hate, I hate that. I hate it when the math is that disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's going to get worse. Oh, I'm really sorry. To quote Vox again, on an episode of Slate's Slow Burn podcast in 2018, host Leon Nafak begins laughing with Hannah Rosen, a journalist who covered the Clinton-Lewiski scandal in 1998, about how absurd it was for Bill Clinton to have pursued an affair with his intern while he was actively being sued for workplace sexual harassment. Rosen laughs, too, and then seems to catch herself. She's quoted saying, oh, it's not funny. It's really not funny. God, we think of this so differently now. It's not funny. I'm actually amazed that in my conversation with you, I'm still laughing because I did think that in my head. The Monica Lewinsky scandal really does mark a moment in feminist shame. It is genuinely the thing I look back on and think, God, the way, I mean, everyone says this, but the way we talked about her, the way we treated her, how blind we were to the power dynamics. We talked about them, but in this kind of superficial way, you know, it just wasn't prime in our minds, the power dynamic and the position she was put in and how her life was absolutely ruined by this and how she got dragged into it. And yet you and I still find it funny. Why is that? End quote. Ooh. Yeah. I was like going to summarize that thought. And then I was like, I'm just going to read this whole thing because I thought that it puts, because it is like, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, I think it's the trope of like this rich girl who got into the White House internship because her parents had some friends, got mixed up with the president. And it like feels like a reality TV show. Like, I think that's why, like, even, and I find this whole thing, like, very, I, I mean, when we started this, I, like, kind of mentioned, like, I find Monica Lewinsky a very fascinating and very, the way that her trajectory following this, I find it very impressive. But even still, this story is hard to take seriously, even though it's so gross. Like, as yeah, I'm yeah. reading this, it's like, but, like, the semen on the dress thing is just so cartoonish and ridiculous. Ugh. And, like, they did a DNA test on on it, and they, like, had to – at some point, the president had to get his mouth swabbed because he was getting a DNA test for semen on a dress that Monica had just kept in her closet just in case. Like, it just – the whole thing, it's so gross. It's so gross in so many ways, but it's also, like, it feels comical because of the way that we culturally – like, it was portrayed, like – 
there's a quote, I don't have it in here, but there's a quote from David Letterman um, a couple of years ago talking about how it's like one of the regrets of his career is the way that he treated her on wow. his late night talk shows. And like I mentioned, like Jay Leno, like his whole shtick was like making blowjob jokes about Monica Lewinsky. And this kind of like, she's not a person, she's a caricature in American history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. However, Monica is really trying to take back the narrative on her story. Interestingly enough, using the same weapon that harmed her in the first place, the media. In 2018, after the rise of the Me Too movement, she released what was the second of two Vanity Fair essays outlining her story in her own words. Her take is that while Bill did not sexually assault her per se, his actions were, quote, constituted a gross abuse of power, end quote. She's gone on to become an anti-bullying and anti-public shaming advocate after delivering a powerful TED Talk titled The Price of Shame. And if you have never watched her TED Talk, it is so good. Like I, Hmm. it's 22 minutes long, pop some popcorn, grab some tissues it is so good. If I could just, like, play the transcript on the podcast, I would. But I think that we'd get sued by TED Talk. Um, in the same essay for Vanity Fair, she writes, Until the hashtag MeToo movement, historians hadn't really had the perspective to fully process and acknowledge that year of shame and spectacle I experienced, end quote. I don't know that there's a proper line of thinking when it comes to the story, other than Bill Clinton is, like, a gross, gross man. And taking this up a higher level like beyond just that he slept with an intern taking this up to like why he was getting impeached he publicly lied under oath in front of the entire nation like he really just like took a shit and then sat in it and on top of that like it it is about monica but it's also about the countless women before Paula Jones, who Paula Jones' case eventually got thrown out. She never, she sought $750,000 in reparations and her case was ultimately thrown out. There was another woman named Camilla who also never got uh, got anything from her case. The probe just found that, yes, Bill Clinton is a liar. We should impeach him because he's a liar. Not because he systematically like approaching these young interns and doing this to them. So were the other like hundred affairs he had with like staff? I don't know. I don't know about like all of them, but it, he is like a known quote unquote womanizer predator is the better word. And there in one of the articles I was reading, um, it mentions that he was at an event recently that Ariana Grande was singing at, or it was Aretha Franklin's funeral two years ago, and he was caught like ogling her while Hillary is like sitting next to him. And that's the thing that's crazy too. So Hillary, on the flip side of all of this, she spends this first seven months before he admits to it publicly on this full like rampage of like I believe my husband you just wait like he did not sleep with this woman blah 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 whether Hillary believed it or not that is the campaign that she went with and to this day she when she has publicly talked about it she sides with Bill Clinton as it was a mistake in the moment and overall it doesn't mean anything and like is very 
like Monica as an adult, she chose to do this because that's the thing that makes us sticky. Monica pursued him and openly admits in all of her, all of the articles that all of the interviews that she's done, she openly admits that she pursued him, but he was 30 years her senior in a position. She was an unpaid intern and he was the president of the United States. Who's the adult in that you situation? You could not be more opposite no. jobs. If I, so like I work in corporate America, right? I have like a very, very strict sexual harassment policy in my employment agreement. And part of that agreement is that no one that is, is in a position of power over me can like, I cannot be in a relationship in any capacity. Like I couldn't work for my dad at my company. I could not work for somebody that I was dating. I could like, if I have any sort of like emotional relationship with them beyond the bounds of like a workplace environment, I cannot work under them. And if HR finds out that we're, that's happening, we get terminated. Like it's like an immediate termination. And yet (laughs) in like the highest office in the land, there's no, like, there's, there's no policy for that. Like, you know what I mean? It's just, Mm -hmm. it's just crazy. And I think one of the things that's also interesting about like the feminist rhetoric that around all of this is how the way that Monica as an, like a symbol in the United States has transitioned from the harlot to the supreme Me Too victim is just like, it's such an interesting trajectory and it really shows like the last 20 to 30 years of our country's like relationship to the concept of women, particularly interesting as of late in regards to the Roe Ro v. Wade decision. And also thank you, Joe, for doing the bare minimum and putting an executive order about that <clears throat> after it had been like, what, two weeks? I don't know. Anyway, um, better late than never, I guess. But he doesn't even know what he's doing ever. No, bless, bless his He's heart. reading, like, basically say, saying, like, read a cue card on air. It, it, it's, it's really bad. It he, is. It anyway. Is. But um, it's also interesting. A lot of, like, what I was reading were feminist thinkers that were active in the 90s and how their rhetoric around Monica changed year over year. And how at first she was vilified because she was like doing the liberated women thing that all the women like that there was like a push for in the 90s, like the sex in the city thing, like you go and you have your affairs and like you are a modern woman and whatever, but she wasn't doing it in the way that like culture wanted her to. And so she was vilified because she's like, you can you can go sleep around, but not like that kind of thing. And then now it's like, okay, it's not about her sleeping around. It's about the fact that she was put in a position with a man in power and nobody at no point, no one stepped in aside from saying, we're just going to move you. We're just going to move you because you're the problem. Not, we're going to say to the president, hey, don't fuck your interns. Jesus. Um, Oh, it's so stupid. I know. I know. I literally, I could talk about this for like three hours. It's so crazy. Absolutely Mm -hmm. crazy. So anyway, that is the story of Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton's very highly publicized affair in the late 90s and the subsequent consequences for the Me Too movement. 
Wow. Well done. That was fascinating. Yeah. Horrifying. It's... Upsetting. But fascinating. Yeah. I'm glad that she's at least getting some platform today to talk about it. Oh, yeah. She she went back. So her master's degree in psychology, she got in like 2015. She went back to school um, and she's now like a very, very like strong public figure in the anti-bullying movement. She's very active like politically and all of the things she just produced. So the show American Crime Story, their third season is called I think it's called Impeachment. And it's about this story and she executive produced it. So Ryan Murphy, the same guy who did Glee of all people, um, he and her are the two executive producers. And she was the one that was like, she did a lot of the script edits. She was like very much, she advocated for the way that her story was portrayed because it's the first time that it's ever been done with her like on the crew, like, because obviously it's been, the story has been done in a million different ways on TV and in the news and whatever. But this was the first time that she got to be involved in every step of the process and telling her story and um, Beanie Feldstein, RIP to her funny girl career, but Beanie Feldstein plays Monica Lewinsky in that show. And yeah. It's very, very good. It's very fascinating. Thank you for telling that story. You're so welcome. This was a very interesting theme. I liked it. It was. It was fun. I felt like I was doing a school assignment in a good way. (laughs) Right? Right? I know. That's kind of how I felt, too. And speaking of themes, and next week is going to be 321 Shots featuring a very special guest. And the week after that, we will be recording our long episode, which will be... We're going to do musician history. History of some of our favorite musicians and yes. their wild backstories, of which there are some great stories. Yes, so, there are. Thank you all for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Yep, see you next week. We've got a really exciting guest. Can't wait to tell you all who it is. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, don't forget to like subscribe all of the things and we you can find us on instagram at salt lime story time thanks so much for listening mm-hmm. we'll see you next week okay bye bye bye